Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Whale Nerds podcast. This is episode 141, and my name is Caitlin. I have emerged from the depths of the Southern Ocean and um, just wanted to bring you some updates about how's it been going uh, down in Antarctica this season. I'm finally on a, a break after like four months of going almost nonstop. And so I just wanted to talk a little bit about some of the trips I've been on and um, yeah, just kind of give an update on, on how the season is going and uh, hopefully actually be able to put out a couple um, episodes with information about uh, what I've been doing. So um, first, I want to start off, as always, by saying thank you to everybody for supporting the podcast. We've definitely had a much slower um, past 12 months, um, but I appreciate you sticking with us, listening to older episodes, maybe just getting caught up to where we are now. Um, and as always, those of you that have supported us past, present, and future, whether it's going on trips, buying merch, checking out the website, listening, rating, reviewing, subscribing, all of that good stuff, um, always appreciated any way, shape, or form that you can support our work. But especially thank you to those of you that supported us on Patreon by donating monthly uh, to the podcast because you are really what makes the the podcast possible. Um, it's not free to produce the podcast, and so that helps cover um, the expenses of maintaining the website and the podcast platform and all that good stuff. And that's really really helpful for us. Um, and also thank you to the Safina Center for a third year of support of um, my work with the podcast and a couple other projects I'm doing. So they also help. Um, sustain the expenses of operating the podcast and help us um, make things work. Um, this year is the first year that we're not doing trips um, for a while. So um, as much as I love seeing you all in the spring, it's just with my schedule and just um, how the spring usually is in Monterey, uh, we decided not to do them this year. We do miss seeing all your faces and hope that you still go whale watching this spring somewhere. If it happens to be Monterey, great. Maybe some of you guys can get together and do your own thing. Um, but also just go see a whale if you can, um, even if it's without us. And um, as always, you can check out what we're doing on our website, which is thewhalenerds.com. And um, we do also have a Facebook page where I share like news and research and things like that, in addition to information about our episodes and events. Um, and then you can also follow us on Instagram, which is at whale nerds. And then we do have a YouTube channel where you can find video versions of all of these episodes as well um, from episode 100 onwards. So uh, just full disclosure, I am recording this in an Airbnb. And so like you probably hear the refrigerator and traffic and maybe people talking in the hallway. Um, yeah, it's just kind of been my thing the last few episodes hotels ship rooms all that kind of stuff it's not a quiet nice recording space um but it's what I have and I want to since I have some time I wanted to record um and this first episode I wanted to talk about uh, my first trip of this season because it was a really big one and I think it like deserves an episode by itself um and then we'll see where we go from there but yeah, my first trip of the season was in the middle of October, so I've been down here for a while because now it's the end of February. It's been a long haul, <laughs> uh, 
So in the middle of October, I had just come off the Alaska season. I only had like a two week break, um, which then I was not really like home for because I think I recorded an episode saying I was on the East Coast. I was going to the East Coast, um, saw some friends and some whales there. And then, yeah, I was headed down to Punta Arenas. So I flew down to the bottom of Chile and we did some training uh, with the staff at Cheeseman's Ecology Safaris. And then we actually met most of the guests um, in Punta Arenas. There were some already in the Falkland Islands doing like a pre-trip excursion, um, but we were able to sort of get acquainted with the guests before we started our trip and also do biosecurity, like the first wave of biosecurity um, with the guests in the hotel, which was super, super helpful because basically what biosecurity is, if you are not familiar, is you need to go through all of like the outdoor gear that guests have um, and yourself, like anybody that's going to these remote areas, um, you don't want to transmit any invasive species, whether that's bacteria, viruses, plant material, things like that. So you need to like thoroughly clean your gear, anything that's going to be introduced to the outside environment. So backpacks, um, you know, your outermost layers of jackets and trousers, your boots, your shoes, all that kind of stuff. And like, it has to be a pretty serious level of biosecurity to go to South Georgia, especially, but Antarctica as well. Um, so you like, inspect everybody's clothing if it's brand new like you don't have to stress too much about it just make sure like all the tags are removed there's nothing that can like fall off like stickers things like that um but then you'll have to like make sure the treads of everybody's shoes are clean there's no seeds or plant materials or rocks or anything no mud um pet excessive amounts of pet hair like all that kind of stuff you might have to vacuum their backpack you might have to vacuum and pick out the velcros of their clothing um, and so it's nice to be able to do it not on the ship <laughs> because it's, it gets a lot harder to do with the poor lighting that often you have on, in the common spaces of the ship. Like, I mean, like you need like a headlamp to see what's happening. Um, and then also the ship's moving, right? So like you have to haul around all the equipment, the guests have to carry their stuff around. Like it's just, it's way easier to deal with on land if you can. I, most trips, you do not have that luxury of doing biosecurity at the hotel, but um, with Cheeseman's Ecology Safaris, they try and get at least the first pass done with the guests at the hotel because the it's a charter. So they've chartered a vessel from Oceanwide Expeditions um, and they bring their own team. And so everybody like embarks together, like everybody meets the ship together. So the team is not on the ship turning it over. The expedition team isn't. Um, the rest of the hotel team is, but the expedition team like is with the guests prior to the trip. So that's like something that doesn't happen like literally anywhere else. Um, so we met in Punta Arenas. We had some staff training. We did biosecurity and then we flew from Punta Arenas to the Falkland Islands to the Air Force Base at Mount Pleasant. There's only a flight once a week um, to the Falkland Islands. And not only does it deliver people to the Falkland Islands, it also delivers um, cargo, um, any supplies that um, come on the weekly flight 
things like that. Um, which is kind of stressful because you're like hoping that everything makes it right because you're flying in and then like immediately embarking on the ship. So if like your luggage gets lost, you have nothing for like your whole trip. So you can try and buy stuff like when you get to Falklands, but the options are very limited. Luckily, as far as I know, everybody's stuff made it. There was no big hangups at the airport. Um, everybody made it through customs and everything okay. Um, and when you fly into Mount Pleasant, like security is so strict. Like you can't take photos of anything. And also like, it was so windy when we landed that like the plane was having a hard time staying on the ground after it was on the ground, like not moving. So they had to like unload the plane in like a weird order to keep all the weight at the front, which in hindsight, my one feedback for them is they should have just told everybody in the front to sit down and disembark the back of the plane first. But what do I know? So anyways, yeah, it was super windy. They told everyone like, take off your hats, take off your sunglasses, secure everything in your bags before you walk on the airstrip. And it was like, it was so windy. It would like take your feet out when you were like stepping. Um, And then we had like dogs sniffing around, searching for like food. You can't bring any fresh produce, meat, cheese, nothing like that into the islands. Um, And then we went through customs um, because the Falkland Islands is actually British. Um, and if you're interested in like more of the history aspect of that, the Falklands was a largely disputed set of islands in the 80s between Argentina and the UK. And actually, that's why you have to fly from Chile to get there, because there's no commercial flights from Argentina, um, because the UK ended up prevailing and uh, keeping the territory. And it's a pretty big sticking point. Um, between the Falklands and Argentina, like here, I'm I'm in Ushuaia now in Argentina, and like everything says Isla Malvinas, like everything says territory of Malvinas, and like that includes the Falklands. So it's kind of interesting to see how it, the two like countries view the territory. Um, and then as far as anyone knows, there was no serious indigenous habitation before uh, colonization by, by Europeans. There was some disputes between Spain and the UK and a couple other countries along the way before the dispute with Argentina. Um, but yeah, and then this is also like totally an aside, but if you kind of keep track of like the World Cup drama, like when Argentina and England face off, like if you watch a David... Beckham Netflix thing or like keep up with like last year's World Cup like that game is so intense because the two countries had such a massive dispute over the Falklands there's other like colonial history there as well but it's really the most recent thing with the eight dispute in the early 80s over the Falklands um so yeah so if you're interested in going down a rabbit hole for fun you know if you have spare time you can look up the history of the Falklands war um but yeah, so we flew from Mount Pleasant or from Chile to Mount Pleasant. And then Mount Pleasant is like not really close to like the center of town, so to speak. Um, so then we had to take a bus for an hour from Mount Pleasant base to Stanley, which is like the capital of the Falkland Islands. Um, it's also where Government House officially is for South Georgia, because South Georgia is also 
um, a UK territory. And because South Georgia is so remote, um, they don't have like official offices on South Georgia. Um, so they have like they have bases and, and research stations and things like that. But the government house of the South Georgia government is actually in Stanley as well in the Falklands. So on our bus ride to Stanley, um, we saw lots of sheep. That's like very famous what the islands were um, sort of settled and used for over colonial history there is sheep farming. We saw lots of geese, which are like natural there, upland geese and um, kelp geese, just like you see here in Tierra del Fuego, like in Chile and Argentina in the south. Um, they also have this really weird geologic feature of these I think it's like a post ice age, like glaciation thing, but they're like these, they look like rivers of white rocks. They're called stone runs that move, like creep down the island and they, they look really weird. It'll be like kind of this like low vegetation, like landscape. And then these big like runs of white rocks all down the hill. Um, so you should Google it because it's pretty weird. I might put a photo up in the YouTube video. I took a few photos of the stone runs. And then when we got to Stanley itself, um, we we didn't have very much time before we had to meet the ship. And so we got to kind of like stretch our legs, walk around, use the bathroom, pop into the visitor center, like get a couple quick souvenirs, that kind of stuff. Um, I kind of stuck around mostly the harbor there were South American sea lions on the dock, which was a new species for me. Um, and that was exciting to see. There was a young male with a couple females and he was annoying them. And they were like very obvious with how annoyed they were. <laughs> he also, the poor thing, he had an entanglement scar on his neck that was still like really fresh. Like the skin was all irritated, but I think he'll be fine. Um, we saw like Falkland steamer ducks. We saw um, rock shags. We saw uh, dolphin gulls. So some good stuff. And then um, I think we like have less than an hour in Stanley um, to get everyone organized. All the people that had been on the pre-trip excursion met us there. Um, and we all loaded up everything in the Zodiacs and it all got craned onto um, the ship. So like the ship was on anchor. There's no like big, well, there is a big dock, but there were other ships on it. So we couldn't use it. So we used like the city pier and put everybody's luggage into the Zodiacs and like in cargo nets. And then it got craned up onto the boat and then distributed um, to everybody's rooms. And then once all the luggage was done, then we started to take the guests on board and the staff got on board. And it was pretty quick after that. Like once you're on, like let's do the lifeboat drill, let's get out of here. So you do the safety briefing and orientation, gather everybody. Um, we do a practice abandoned ship drill, and then you can heave anchor and get out of there. And we left and started working our way towards South Georgia. Um, we did have a little bit of weather to contend with. So we, um, and like there's a vessel speed restriction around South Georgia because of how many whales there are. And so we passed by Shag Rocks. We didn't really make a very close approach. And then we just boogied on over to South Georgia. It took us two days to get there. And um, this season is like hallmarked by the precautions and um, closures of sites based 
on concerns for avian influenza. So if you don't know what's going on with avian influenza, um, it started being a really big issue two summers ago in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and basically it's um, an H5N1 type of virus that like we have had other strains um, of like over the years that have broken out and like even been transmittable to humans. Avian influenza is also transmittable to humans. Um, so it is uh, something that recur like recurs uh, throughout the um, decades, I guess, like swine flu is a, it's a very similar built virus. Um, and so the most recent outbreak basically comes from a wild bird population infecting animals in a poultry farm. And then because of the overcrowding conditions in the poultry farm, then like becomes much more virulent and much more deadly. And then unfortunately spills back into the wild bird population um, and starts just decimating bird populations all over the Northern hemisphere for the previous two summers, like entire gannet colonies, turn colonies, big outbreaks in gulls. There have not been too many human mortalities, um, but there have been like tens of thousands of dead birds in colonies um, over the past few summers in the Northern hemisphere. And unfortunately it did work its way South um, in the summer of 23 and which was our Northern hemisphere winter, like the whole world's upside down now we're in the Southern hemisphere. Um, anyway, so it was really bad in bird colonies again in the Southern hemisphere but also started to work its way into seals. And it was really bad with seals and sea lions in South America. And unfortunately, the way the weather and the animals move from the bottom of South America is to the east, which is where Falklands in South Georgia is. And so there was a lot of concern at the beginning of the season that has continued through the whole season um, about avian influenza. So this first trip, we're one of the first ships of the season to go to South Georgia. There was like two ships ahead of us and then everybody else was coming behind us. So we were kind of on the front end of like figuring out what is going on with avian flu in South Georgia because the South Georgia government and the researchers that are there do not have the resources to investigate every spot. So they're really relying on the ships that are visiting to make assessments and reports, and then they can go follow up. So we make it to the north end of South Georgia. And um, like, just as we make it there, the first reports from Bird Island, which is right next to South Georgia itself, um, come from the research station that there's a case of avian flu. So all this fear that we had had was coming true. We get to this location on the north end called El Sahul, which we got in there. The weather was horrible, like blowing like 50 knots outside of the bay. And we were like, nah, I don't think we're going to, I don't think we're going to actually land here. And then we got in there and like the wind died and we we're like, oh, maybe, maybe we will. But unfortunately, 
once we got into our final position for anchoring, it was just going to be like way too rough at the gangway to load the Zodiacs. So we just did a ship cruise of Elsa Hole. It was kind of a nice little introduction to South Georgia. It was really good to see land after two days at sea. Um, there are albatross nesting there, black-browed and gray-headed albatross. Um, gray-headed albatross is a new species for me. And they're really interesting looking birds. And we got our first distant, like through binocular views of um, southern elephant seals, king penguins, um, there were quite a few giant petrels flying around, including an all white one. So there's a white morph of the southern giant petrel that many guides call the white Nelly. Um, I don't know. I don't really know why. But um, yeah, so it was kind of a nice little introduction to South Georgia. It was good to like be there, have arrived there. And there was a surprising amount of um, icebergs around, which was also quite interesting. So we decided not to operate in Elsa Hole. We kind of toured around a little bit, and then we went over to this place um, called Rosita Harbor. So we went down the coast a little ways, and we were able to land at Rosita Harbor. Um, there's not, there was not at the time a ton of wildlife there. There were some elephant seals with pups, like a small, a couple small harems around. There were a handful of fur seals around that, like didn't really care that we were there. It was mostly young animals. Um, but it was an excellent place to see South Georgia pintails, which is like one of the furthest south occurring duck species in the world. Um, and they are endemic. They're a subspecies that's endemic to South Georgia. And they're super cute until you realize that to survive the winter, they're carnivorous. And you're like, wait a second these ducks eat meat this is weird <laughs> but anyways it was really cool to see them um again another new species for me um we got a few glimpses of south georgia pipits they're like a little um passerine or like a little songbird also the furthest south songbird and um both the pintail and the pipit are species that really suffered heavily from the rat infestation on South Georgia that persisted um, from the commercialization of seal hunting and whaling and only has recently been fully eradicated from the island. And like almost as soon as all the rats were gone, both population, both species populations rebounded really well. So we saw lots of them. Um, throughout the trip, but our first like real introduction was in Rosita Harbor. There was one king penguin standing by itself um, on the beach, and there was one Gen 2 penguin. So we like, you know, yay, penguins. We saw a few, but um, we had many more to come after that. So the next day we landed in the morning at a place called Right Whale Bay. As you can imagine, it was popular with whaling. Um, there were whale bones all over the beach and an incredible amount of wildlife. So it's a big glacial plain area. There is a king penguin colony there, um, but there was huge numbers of elephant seals on the beach, lots of little babies of like already fully weaned to like brand new born that day, pups big males still around defending their territories um and then quite a few fur seals around as well so it's kind of our first like real full dose of like south georgia like thousands of penguins 
hundreds of seals um, really had to like pay attention to where you're walking and keep track of the wildlife. And uh, yeah, it was really incredible. It was kind of cute to see like the little elephant seal pups that had been weaned, like all cuddled up next to like whale bones. And yeah, also they're just elephant seal pups are the cutest, like so adorable. I can't believe they're so cute. And um, so that was incredible. We got to like kind of walk up this snowy slope and see like big groups of king penguins going back and forth. Um, and yeah, we got our first taste of like feisty fur seals, which was entertaining to say the least. <laughs> um, and then in the afternoon, we went to the legendary Salisbury Plain, um, which is the second largest king penguin colony on South Georgia. It's like a hundred thousand breeding pairs or something like that. So it's like at any one time, there's 200,000 penguins around because like at least one parent's around typically coming and going. And then the chicks are there and king penguins uh, have chicks in their colony all the time because they're the only species that keeps the chick through a winter season. So most penguins like get together in the spring, set up their nests, um, reacquaint with their mate, breed, lay their eggs, fledge the chick before the fall. So like, it's like, boom, 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 boom. Like nesting and courting and breeding for like a month, maybe six weeks, brood the egg for a month, take care of the chicks for two months, bang, they're out of there. King penguins um, take care of the chicks for 14 months. So some parents um, have like courtship and lay the egg in November. And then those chicks fledge by like the next February. Um, and then, and then they try and have two chicks every three years. So then the ones that fledge chicks in February molt and recover and then try again for another egg in March. And now fall comes very quickly in South Georgia, not as quickly as it comes in Antarctica, but March is really late to hatch a chick. The chicks are really small and the season starts to get really nasty. It starts to get really cold really quickly. And so it's hard to fatten up the chick in time um, to, to have a successful chick make it through the winter but every once in a while they do often the 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 fall babies fail um, but sometimes they do make it and so there's always chicks in the colony and they're these big bulky brown fluffy things they're like three times the girth of the adults if the parents are doing a good job it's like they're obscenely large it's hilarious to see this poor parent like walking around in this like bulky little tub of a chick is like me, me you know all after the parent it's oh my god it's so cute and so funny um so yeah like January they start to kind of like fledge that chick from the previous spring um and then yeah try and brood in February hatch the chick in March and try again um so there's always lots of babies and they make this cute little whistly call like oh yeah it was incredible unfortunately that was the only time we landed at Salisbury Plain for the whole season. Um, I did Zodiac Cruise it there later. I'll talk about that probably in another episode, but I'm glad that we at least did it once. Um, 
because yeah, there's just like nothing like standing on the edge of a massive penguin colony like that. And I'm also glad that the guides um, that were down in that area, like me and another guide were working the beach with um, the ship doctor, who's like the beach master, usually during our operations for Cheesemans. It's a little unorthodox compared to other companies, but it works really well. Um, they were like, you guys need to come down here. And I was kind of like, you know, I didn't know any better. I was like, okay, like, cause I was having a great time with all the penguins and seals on the beach. I was like, this is pretty cool. And they're like, no, you need to like come all the way down here. This is awesome. And I got down there and was like, oh man, I am glad I walked all the way down here. This is incredible. And, uh, and to even, <laughs> to even land there, like I'm sitting in the Zodiac waiting for like the scouting party to come back or like confirm that we can land because we have to do like a thorough investigation, like watch all the animals behavior before you can take people ashore to prove that, that you know, it's like to, to do your due diligence that there's no avian influenza on the site. Because if there is like, if you get there and there's like loads of dead animals or a bunch of disoriented animals, then like you have to cancel the landing. So I'm like sitting in the Zodiac by the ship because I'm going to shuttle guests. Like I'm not taking the scouting team. I'm not taking the equipment. And I'm just like, okay, guys, it's been like 30 minutes. Like we should have already started taking guests ashore. Like what is taking so long? And the expedition leader said something like, oh, we're having a little bit of difficulty at the beach. And I was like, oh no, like conditions might be too rough to land here. Like um, maybe it's too much swell or whatever, which was an issue, but it was like manageable. Um, but <laughs> there was a leopard seal that like dove under the Zodiac as the Zodiac was coming into the beach and then was like circling the Zodiac and none of the guides wanted to get out of the boat. <laughs> so the expedition leader was like, um, yeah, everybody refused to put their feet in the water after the leopard seal swam underneath us when we were less than a boat length from the shore. So that was actually the hang up at the beach. Um, but we did end up having to surf land. So like the Zodiac comes in, um, perpendicular to the waves, pins on the shore. You need extra people holding the boat because the boat is like getting pushed up and down on the stern by the waves. You get everybody out of the boat off the bow and then you have to have a very carefully coordinated team with the Zodiac engine off and the driver in it to spin the Zodiac between waves and get it pointed straight back out and then help them get timed and push back out into the waves where they can put the engine back in the water, turn it on and get out in time. So that was like tricky, but like the team that we had at Cheeseman's was really good at it. I mean, this is the other thing I'll say about that trip is like, we took like what, 16 guides or whatever from all different companies, all different walks of life actually, and somehow put them on a team and it worked really well. Like the expedition leader, Hugh, he picked a really great team. A lot of people with experience um, and just like good attitudes and yeah. I was, it was a really, really cool team to work on. I learned a lot and like feel really lucky to have been a part of it. So that was Salisbury Plain. Amazing. The next day we were scheduled to go to Fortuna Bay. Um, unfortunately, the weather was horrendous. Um, and this is typical of South Georgia. First of all, there are no easy landings 
in South Georgia, period. Put that out of your mind. There are no easy landings in South Georgia. Um, the It's like these really tall, steep mountains with a huge ice field on top and big glaciers coming down each side of the mountain out in the middle of the Southern Ocean. Like it makes its own weather. The ice fields make their own weather. They make amazingly fast and crazy winds with little warning. And so it's not unusual to have to cancel landings in South Georgia. Um, so we get to Fortuna, it's raining. It's blowing like 40, 50 knots of wind with no sign of backing down. We sat there on anchor for a while, I think almost two hours um, because we wanted to do the Shackleton walk. Um, that's another little fun rabbit hole you can go down about the um, failed trans-Antarctic expedition led by Ernest Shackleton. Um, he wanted to cross from the Weddell Sea and the Ross Sea and entirely cross the Antarctic continent. The Weddell Sea Party took off from South Georgia, got trapped in the ice, um, had to overwinter in the ice, and then abandoned the ship. It sank. They made it to Elephant Island in the lifeboats, and then he left most of the men at Elephant Island and took six men in a lifeboat, crossed from Elephant Island to South Georgia with like a rigged sail and like it's, it's an incredible it's one of the most incredible small boat journeys in human history is how it's described um and so they made it to south georgia to ask for help and they had to climb across the mountains um to because they landed on the wrong side of south georgia basically they climbed across the mountains the glaciers the snow fields and went to the whaling station at stromness to ask for help and when they were close to fortuna bay they, they also had to rewrite the map of South Georgia to navigate for themselves by hand from memory. So like the map wasn't super accurate. Um, but when they got to Fortuna, they could hear the work whistle at Stromness Whaling Station, which is like the next bay over. And so they knew they were close to help. And so there's like kind of like a tribute walk um, from Fortuna over the last like part of the mountain down into Stromness. So that's part of why we wanted to go to Fortuna. I mean, Fortuna is a cool place anyway, um, but we wanted to do the Shackleton walk. And then like whoever didn't do the walk, we could like, you know, kind of walk around in Fortuna or cruise around. And then we would take the ship around to Stromness and pick everybody up and, you know, do a landing at Stromness as well. Uh, but unfortunately that was not going to happen with the weather that we had. That was not safe to hike. It wasn't even safe to like get in the Zodiacs. So we waited there a while, decided to cancel the landing. We took the ship around to go look. Uh, we put on like a lecture program. We put, took the ship around to go look at the whaling station at Husavik, which was a Norwegian whaling station. And then we went to Stromness, which is like right next door to Husavik. Um, and we did a landing at Stromness. It also was kind of a last minute decision if we were gonna be able to do it or not, because it was when we got there blowing like 40, 50 knots of wind. Um, I gave a lecture by the end of the lecture, the wind did like drop down to like 20 or less. And we were like, mm, let's try it. So we got on shore, we did the scouting, got all the gear on. And as soon as we were about to say, okay, let's get the guests, like a 60 knot gust of wind <laughs> came down the beach and it was raining. Um, 
but I mean, we were kind of like already committed at that point. So we just put ballast in the Zodiacs and we did it and we pulled it off for a while. Um, and it was fine. It was very wet, but it was fine. Um, it was very interesting to see the whaling station in that like moody, atmospheric, like rainy, stormy um, vibe. So that was kind of cool. And there was lots of elephant seals, some with brand new pups. Um, and there were a few fur seals around. Really good looks at Antarctic terns as well, feeding like right next to Zodiac. So that was cool. So then the next day, we went to the famous Gritviken, or Gritviken, if you're Norwegian, I think is how you say it. Um, and that was the first whaling station built in South Georgia in 1904 um, by the kind of grandfather of whaling in South Georgia, Carl Anton Larsen. Um, and that's where, that's like the mainstay of South Georgia government on South Georgia. So there's King Edward Point, there's a British Antarctic Survey research base there, um, which is like across the bay from where the whaling station was. Um, where the whaling station is, there's the remnants of the station that's mostly been cleaned up and is like safe to walk around in. Um, there are a few refurbished buildings that can be visited, like an old workshop. Um, the main like manager's villa was turned into a museum. Um, there's a post office there. And there's also like a little outbuilding next to the museum that has, um, but it's like an auxiliary of the museum. It has more stuff in it, including a replica of the James Caird, which is the lifeboat that they sailed from Elephant Island to South Georgia. Um, and six men in this 22 and a half foot boat. Wow. Like, oh my God, it's tight quarters. It's like crazy. Um, they also have like a, two replicas of wandering albatross. One's mounted on the ceiling in the museum. One's mounted like sideways from floor to ceiling um, in the outbuilding next to James Caird. Um, and so it's pretty cool to to look at the whole thing and like the story of the endurance, like it's wild. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, or if you just want to read about how they like were inspired to find the shipwreck because they just recently found it within the last couple of years. Um, there's a, a book called the ship beneath the ice. And it's pretty cool uh, to, to see how they put together these men's journals and stories and like the estimations from the captain of the ship of like where they think the ship went down and then they actually found it. So it is underneath the ice still in the Weddell Sea. Um, and it's it, it's in really good condition because the cold, deep water that it's in, it's in like 3000 meters of water or something has preserved it really well. Um, so it's a pretty cool story. And like, you can't go to these places without like really kind of getting immersed, especially in the Shackleton story when it comes to South Georgia. Um, he's also buried there. So um, the tradition is to go to the cemetery and make a toast to him and just to like expedition in general. Um, and you drink a little bit of whiskey for yourself and then you pour some on his grave and he's been dead for a hundred years. And like, he's pretty well preserved with all the alcohol that gets poured on him every summer so um it was pretty cool also to see like the wildlife reclaim this whaling station like it has lush green grass and birds nesting on top of the structures and 
seals in between the buildings and like baby seals are being born there and there's king penguins walking around and um yeah so it's kind of an interesting like kind of twist on this dark history that started in south georgia um and for the first time for many years you could actually also walk out towards king edward point and go out to the memorial cross at hope point which was initially um put up by the shackleton crew on the voyage that he died on um he wasn't initially going to be buried at the cemetery in Gritviken. Um, they started sending his body home and his, his wife didn't want it. <laughs> Most people tell it like a really like PC way, like, oh, she knew that he really wanted to like be there because that was his love was adventure in the sea and, you know, the Southern Ocean. But I really think it was that she was pissed and she was stuck with a lot of debt and she did not want to pay to get his body sent home. And so she's like, uh-uh, leave him there. I don't want it. <laughs> That's my take. Just knowing how many of these great adventurer men that we glorify um, were not the greatest husbands. And um, I'm sure that she was just like bury him there <laughs> so yeah so I sent some postcards from the post office I got to walk out to Hope Point there were South Georgia pippets sitting on the memorial cross singing um there were a few feisty fur seals to kind of get everybody's attention there were brand new like must have been born that morning before we got there elephant seal pups out at um King Edward Point and so that was really that was cool. It was a really nice morning and the weather was beautiful. Um, we had a few roadblocks out to King Edward Point and back because sometimes the seals would just like stop and take a nap in the middle of the road, which is funny. Um, and then in the afternoon, we went to this place called Godhole. And Godhole is, it's like this little secluded bay. And I think it actually means like God's Harbor or something in Norwegian. I don't really remember. Um, but it's like very, very steep in the tussock grass. So um, once we got all the guests on shore, I was like helping with like loading on the beach because there's a lot of seaweed and it's really slippery. And then it's this big vertical climb through this like really clumpy grass called tussock grass. And I I had some free time. And so I like wanted to hike up and go see the penguins. But I got like most of the way through the tussock and started having an allergic reaction. And so I was like, mm, I'm gonna start to come back down. And then the guests started to come back down too. And the tussock is really difficult terrain to walk in. So I ended up just toughing it out in the grass and like helping everybody walk back down. But um, there is a really cool like scenic um, Gen 2 penguin colony up there. And then we also had this mountaineering guide on board with us who's literally a Sherpa from Nepal, like legendary has like his grandpa was the first person to summit Everest. Um, his name's Tashi Tenzing. He has like his own Wikipedia page because he summited Everest multiple times as a Sherpa guide. Um, he took people way up the mountain and he led quite a few of the hikes and did the ice assessments and things for the trip. And it was really cool. So they got way, way, way up there on the mountain, which was really nice. Um, and yeah, so that was Godhole. Oh, and I think we had a barbecue there that night and it was super pretty, beautiful sunset colors. We got to see the moon come up. Um, yeah, really nice evening. Oh, the other thing about Gritviken, so that is also where you check in with the South Georgia government and you have a biosecurity inspection. So like we were like so harsh on biosecurity, 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 just like talking about every 
second of every day because we were like, we will be inspected at Griffin by the government officials. They will come on the ship. They will check guests. They will check the ship. They will do a bunch of paperwork. They will check the guides, everything. And we passed. So we did really well on the inspection, so much so that the ship actually continued to have its um, special dispensation status for the rest of the season. So they don't need to go to Gritviken as their first stop, um, and they only need 10% of the guests inspected um, each time they go to Gritviken instead of having 50% or even having uh, more regulations put on them um, while visiting South Georgia. So good job, everybody on board. We all passed, um, and that made things much easier for both Cheesemans and Oceanwide in the future for visits to South Georgia. Um, so then uh, the next day, we went to the biggest colony, in, King Penguin Colony in South Georgia, our, the biggest King Penguin Colony in the world, I believe, um, called St. Andrews Bay. Now, out of precaution, after the detection of bird flu in the vicinity of South Georgia um, at Bird Island, St. Andrews Bay closed. Um, like while we were, like during the trip, as we're working our way down there, we were notified that St. Andrews Bay was closed for landing. So that was like the first like actual impact on the trip. Like we were all kind of staying updated and like hearing, um, you know, news from other ships and like kind of getting more into like really trying to have a microscopic view on what was going on with bird flu. Um, but that was like the first site to close while we were there. So we opted to, because we had landed at Salisbury Plain, um, that was kind of like a small victory for the trip. We decided that we would Zodiac cruise St. Andrews Bay because there's no mortality or anything at the time. It was just a precaution. Um, so it was kind of another way to see a large king penguin colony, like from the perspective of the Zodiac. So like a zoomed back view, which is cool. Um, and it was really swelly that day anyway. So I like it would have been kind of a tricky landing anyway. Um, there's like one little corner that we maybe could have pulled it off in. Um, but as soon as we got over to uh, Clark Point to like start our kind of like carousel uh, Zodiac cruise, there was a leopard seal eating a king penguin like right away we we're like oh <laughs> okay um and a couple times like the leopard seal was kind of acting like a cat um and like playing with it and kind of like would catch it and take it down and then let it go and let it swim around and let it try and get out of the water and then it would grab it again and so it was like kind of brutal, but also like kind of cool. And like, it's like the penguin swam towards the Zodiacs a couple of times trying to get away. So then the leopard seal came towards the Zodiacs. And it was like, for me as a driver, at one point, the penguin was like back by my engine. And I was like, no, 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 get out of here. <laughs> but it was definitely an entertaining Zodiac cruise. Uh, St. Andrews Bay is also the largest um southern elephant seal colony on south georgia it's like six thousand elephant seals or something like that so or no six thousand females come ashore so it's like twelve thousand elephant seals um because the females have pups and then there's males around and yeah it's it's a lot of elephant seals um so it was it was cool it was interesting um it was an interesting way to see everything we had a beautiful view of 
um, the mountains. And so it was like amazing to have the scale of like everything on the beach, the sprawling king penguin colony in the back, and then these huge mountains and two big glaciers coming down. Um, so overall, I think it was still a good experience in St. Andrews, even though we couldn't land there. Um, and then in the afternoon, we actually, did we backtrack to get to Gold Harbor? Anyways, we went to Gold Harbor um, and there was so much wildlife we couldn't land. Um, it was lightly snowing throughout the afternoon. Um, and so we like could not find a spot on the beach between the elephant seals to like maintain five meter distance and get everything ashore and get guests ashore. So we opted to um, Zodiac cruise and I ended up not getting assigned to drive because we didn't have very many people interested because it was windy and snowy. Um, but there were a few, there was actually two leopard seals around. There was really great looks at Southern elephant seals, um, but it also turned into like whiteout snow conditions. And so I was sitting on the ship drinking a hot chocolate and watching the Zodiacs disappear in the snow and <laughs> being fairly grateful that I was not out driving. I was like, I'm down here all season. I'll have plenty of other snowy Zodiac cruises. I don't have to do this one today. So then on our last day in South Georgia, we went to this place called Cooper Bay. Oh, the other thing I'll say about Gold Harbor is there were like two dead adult fur seals floating in the water and two dead elephant seal pups floating in the water. And there was lots of birds like feeding on the carcasses. They were pretty fresh. And we kind of had this moment where we were like, hmm, we don't have a lot of information about like how to interpret this in seals, but like this could be the, this, this is suspicious. So we, I don't know if we reported it or not, but we were kind of like, this is a little, this is borderline reportable. So that was Gold Harbor. We get to Cooper Bay um, the next morning. Oh my God, gorgeous weather, like glassy, sunny, just incredible. And Cooper Bay is um, where there is a macaroni penguin colony on South Georgia. There's a few spots. Cooper Bay at the beginning of the season is really the only time you can land. And there's not very many macaroni penguins there yet, but the bay that you land at is so small that once the fur seals are there, it's like, forget it. It's not possible to land and see the macaronis. So we did our survey of the landing area and it was fine. But me and another guide went and looked at the other beaches and there were a few dead elephant seals. And so we like said something to the expedition leader, but we were like, but we're not landing there. So like, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Um, and so... We were able to, we had to use snow anchors and like cut steps in the snow, um, but we got up to the macaroni penguins and it was pretty funny. The expedition leader was like, there's going to be like five macaroni penguins there. Well, there was like 40. So that was an unexpected surprise. And that was really cool. Again, another new species for me was very excited to see macaroni penguins, even if there was only a few, but they were like, you know, honking at each other and picking up rocks and moving them around and stuff. And so, yeah, it was nice to be able to go up there and see them. And also the view from where the macaroni colony is, it's like quite high up. And so it was, it was really nice um, to climb up there and see it. 
there was also snowy sheath bills running around. Um, was it that landing? Yes, there was also um, a light-mantled albatross. There was two pairs flying around. One of them landed right by the landing site and like that must have been their little nesting spot on the cliff and so like the one mate was like calling and then the other one was flying around and they're beautiful birds beautiful albatross their like scientific name means like half-mooned goddess because they have like this white crescent uh lining around their eye just really really pretty birds um oh and that's also where we had this massive fur seal fight breakout so we had almost all the zodiacs on shore and I was part of like the beach loading party um and we had fur seals around but like they were mostly being chill and then like one really feisty one came on shore like while we're operating and we were like great this is gonna be an issue but he like went in the corner and like went and fought with the other fur seals and we're like okay they can go fight in that corner like who cares like they're 50 yards away like it doesn't matter well, then the fight spilled into the landing site and like fur was flying. They were like biting each other and chasing each other around and like ripping into each other. And so we had to like gather all the guests around the emergency shore landing gear. And like me and another guide had to have um, like poles. And we were like defending <laughs> the guests because they were like going at it and just like running circles around us. And it was... Yeah, we had to wait for everybody to calm back down before we could keep moving again. And then later when we like cleaned up all the landing gear and we were putting the flag poles away, one guy um, picked up the bag for the poles and was like, why is there hair? In <laughs> and I was like, dude, I told you we had this huge fight with the fur seals. I'm not kidding when I said fur was flying and the bag was like full of these tufts of fur that the seals had ripped off of each other. So it was a really nice morning in Cooper Bay. The, some of the Zodiacs went cruising and we saw our first leucistic um, Antarctic fur seal. It was actually an adult male. So it was all blonde. Um, I'm still trying to figure out more about this color morph. I've heard a lot of different things like through the grapevine from guides. But then when I try and ground truth it in papers, I'm not getting the same information. So the few papers that I found have not described this as like a classic color morph. That's like a typical alternative morph. Like sometimes like, like in Pacific white side dolphins, you have the Brownells morph. It's like this very classic color anomaly that presents the same in many, many individuals, but it does seem on the surface to present the same in Antarctic fur seals where the fur is blonde um, but the eyes are normal color and the flippers and the nose are normal color. But then when I look at the papers, there's descriptions of other animals that are piebald. There's descriptions of the pups. Their first coat of fur is like light brown. It's not blonde. It's not black. It's something else. Um, and then there are some that mention like the nose is a different color and things like that. So it's not quite as straightforward as just an atypical color morph. Um, I've also heard that it's more likely in males than females, but the papers I've found that's not true. It actually occurs at about the same rate in males and females. And then I've heard that it's anywhere from like 
500, one in 500 to one in 1500 pups are born like that. Um, and I don't know if it's like my inability to like use Google Scholar or if there really isn't actually that much published information about this. Um, but anyways, it's a, it's a yellow, like it's a blonde or golden colored fur seal. All its fur instead of being brown is golden um, and they're really cool looking. And so we saw one in Cooper Bay um, before we headed out. And that was really nice. It was also cool to see like an adult one. Um, Cause sometimes you see that, especially during like the peak of pupping season, you see the pups, but you don't see the adults. So we left Cooper Bay knowing that the weather forecast to get from South Georgia to Antarctica was horrible. And so I initially, I thought the plan was Cooper Bay and like, let's get the heck out of here. We need the extra 12 hours, whatever. And I was like, okay, great. Like, thanks, South Georgia. That was awesome. Um, and, but the day was so nice. And so the bridge team kind of like came to Hugh and was like, well, like six hours isn't going to change anything. So then we decided to ship crews down Drygalski Fjord, which is like just around the corner. And there's a big iceberg um, graveyard behind Cooper Island. And then you go into Drygalski Fjord. So we had this amazing, beautiful, sunny iceberg tour. And then we had this really cool, like glassy flat calm cruise down Drygalski Fjord. It was so, so pretty, like the prettiest color blue of water and glaciers. And yeah, it was amazing. Um, and then when we left and we went around the final southbound pass of South Georgia, there were thousands of birds. There was lots of Gentoo penguins swimming around. There were diving petrels. There were albatross. And it was, all, it was really, really good bird life. And so it was an amazing like farewell to South Georgia. Um, and then we were demolished by the weather for three and a half days. It was brutal. It was actually worse than the Drake. Um, and so it was like on the bow, like we were driving into it for most of it. And it was like six to seven meter swells, just like slamming, slamming, slamming for three and a half days. And like, we could not, the only reason we diverted course was to avoid a bunch of ice in the Bransfield Strait as we made our approach to Antarctica. We we initially had all kinds of plans to like go see A23A or go to Elephant Island or go to Brown Bluff. Those all went out the window when we only made three knots overnight one of the nights. Like it was, it was a brutal, it was a brutal crossing. Um, so we finally, after three and a half days of just rocking and rolling, made it to Deception Island in the South Shetland Islands, which is like the north little island chain above the Antarctic Peninsula. So we got a little tour on the outside towards Bailey Head. Um, conditions and timing wise, it didn't really work out to do anything on the outside of Deception Island. So we just motored our way into Neptune's Bellows and then went and had a landing in Whalers Bay. And Deception Island is a volcano. And so it's kind of like Iceland vibes, but like with penguins. So there's tens of thousands of chinstrap penguins on the outside. And then when you go in the inside, um, it's like a snowy volcanic, like you're inside the caldera, basically when you're in whalers, there is 
remnants of an old whaling station there. You can also walk up to Neptune's window. Um, and so we kind of opened up like this big free roaming area. Um, there was Gen 2, like a lot of Gen 2 penguins around. Um, so much so that we were like, are they like, are they going to nest here or like what's going on here? And then we got down the beach from our like main landing site towards the hike up to Neptune's window where you can go up and look over the edge to the outside of Deception Island. And there was a leopard seal on the beach. And when we first got there, it like didn't react to us at all. And we were like, mm, this is a little weird. And it was laying on top of some whale bones. And so we couldn't tell if there was like like if it had vomited or like was having digestive issues or if it like literally was just the discoloration of the whale bones underneath its hind flippers. And then we started looking closer and it was missing a flipper in the back. And we were like, uh, this might not be so good. It's like has a big injury, hasn't really responded to us. Um, so we kind of like snuck up on it a little bit. And it did like move and was like breathing. And we were like, okay, well, at least it's alive. Um, so we set like an extra wide perimeter, like a 10 meter perimeter around it instead of a five meter perimeter around it. And I just stayed down with it throughout the whole landing. Um, and it kind of like got a little more alert as people walked by, but it was happily asleep for most of it. It actually started snoring. Like I have videos of it loudly snoring on the beach, which was hilarious. Um, so we got lots of documentation of the injury of the of it both sides of its face. We it rolled over at one point. We found out it was male. Um, so I'm like putting all this stuff into Happy Whale, just like hoping somebody knows who it is. Uh, later on, found out that it's a it's a known male that hangs out at Deception Island. Um, it's just no one on the Cheeseman's team had ever seen him, um, and he's had that flipper missing for like at least four or five years. So on Happy Whale, you can look him up um, and he, yeah, you can like see how the injury is healed over time. So it was like much gnarlier and like, it's still not closed. Like it's still like red fleshy skin, but like it's healed up way more than it was years ago. So that was pretty interesting. I got to just hang out with an elephant seal that, or uh, with a leopard seal that was snoring on the beach in the snow. So that was cool. Kind of magical. Um, so that was the South Shetland Islands. Then we got down to the Antarctic Peninsula the next day, and we did our first landing at a place called the Useful Islands. Um, a lot of guides call it useless islands. Um, it is kind of a tricky landing if you've like never really been there. There's a lot of shallow rocks. It's kind of weird to navigate around. Um, early in the season, it's great. When it's still covered in snow, it's easy to navigate. It's easy terrain. There's, um, a chinstrap colony up high, which in the early season, like they're already pretty well established. And so it's nice chinstrap col um, penguin colony views. And then down low, the Gen 2s are starting to set up their colony, but it's not like a big, muddy, yucky, krill mess yet. Later in the season, it's much more yucky and messy. Um, but yeah, so you're seeing all the penguins like coming ashore and arriving and you know, there was fur seals that were being very pleasant and sleeping. Um, and then there were Weddell seals on shore as well, which was really nice. And so I mostly kind of hung out down by the um, seals at the bottom of the penguin crossing and like 
because there's like a penguin highway going across the path that we forged. And so basically I was like a seal and penguin crossing guard for the whole landing. And it was fabulous. Um, basically just coaching people on like when to assess when they can walk, when the penguins need the right of way and kind of encouraging them like, go, go, go now, or like, wait. Um, yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> and at the end of the, like, that's one of those moments where you're like, what do you do today at your job? And you're like, I was a penguin highway, highway crossing guard. <laughs> so then by the end of the landing, one Adelie penguin came to shore, which everybody was like, ah, like so excited about. Um, and then also a Weddell seal came on shore that was super pregnant, like the biggest Weddell seal I've ever seen. And it like could not get comfortable. It just kept like sliding around and rolling around. Um, yeah, so that was interesting. Oh, and there was a Weddell seal that got harassed by a snowy sheath bill. They're like the cleanup crew of the penguin colony but sometimes they're like really ruthless um so it was like pecking the hind flippers of this weddell seal trying to get it to poop so that it could have something to eat <laughs> and the weddell seal is just spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning and trying to whip the sheath bill with its flippers and it was it was very i was quite entertained at my post for the day and then in the afternoon, after we went to Useful Islands, we went to Cooverville. There was a massive snowbank, like massive, more than normal, kind of like the year before, I guess. Um, like taller than me. Like I'm standing on the beach looking up at the snowbank. And so we had to cut steps into the snowbank. And even the bottom of the snowbank had been carved so much by the tide that, like, we had to kind of like half bury the shore landing barrels to make the first step into the to the snowbank to get people up. And um, the Gentoos had just arrived within the last few days. And so they were kind of like just running around. None of the rocks were exposed yet. They were all still really buried in snow. And so we let people kind of like walk down the beach. And it was cool because you were like looking up at the penguins if you stayed on the beach. Um, and then there was a little bit of free roaming area as well. But lots of Gen 2 penguins just kind of like getting acquainted with each other and waiting around for, for the snow to melt. And then the next day, wow, we we had a triple header day. So <laughs> we we had to try and because we lost time on our crossing um, in the Scotia Sea, we basically like lost a day and a half. Um, we had to try and pull off all these locations um, to like get a continental landing in for people, mainland landing in for people, get some of these sites in that we love going to. So we did a triple landing day the next day. We did Base Brown within Paradise Bay before breakfast like sunrise landing it was basically just like a walk in the snow um, we broke a fresh fairly fresh trail the researchers don't get there till january we're there you know the first week of november um and like and i'll it just like cougarville and some of the other sites we went to there were ships that had been booked there before us and there was zero evidence that they had landed there so like Cheesemans is one of those companies that like will break trail before other ships will. 
Um, I mean, they have the luxury of like, this is their only trip. So like everybody's fresh and like, let's just, let's just do it. As long as it's safe, let's do it. So we did a lot of cutting of ice. We used snow anchors. We did lots of chopping and shoveling. <laughs> and so we had to do some of that at base Brown as well. Um, I mostly just shoveled steps the entire landing, which was, it was pretty brief anyway. Um, so we landed at base Brown. So everybody could say that they touched the Antarctic continent because it's attached to the main peninsula. Um, geologists and map nerds, you can all argue about whether that's actually the main continent or not. Yes, I know. But if ice is a rock, then it's the main continent. Anyways, so then we went to Danco. So we backtracked um, back towards Coverville and we landed at Danco Island. And when we got to Danco, same thing. Um, there were penguins at the primary landing site. And so we didn't land there. Um, so then we had to try and find an alternative location that was going to still work with the tide because it was high tide. Um, and we had to chop steps and it was like, it was one of the more sketchy landings we did where we like basically made a spot for the Zodiac to pull in, put the nose of the Zodiac in the snowbank into these chop steps and then just like help people, like people on both sides, just help them get up the shore. So we get all that set up, we get the landing gear on shore and I go help with the team to like break the trail with snowshoes with Tashi and a few other guides because we're going to let people like switch back up to the top. And they, there's like no penguins there. There's a few at the landing site that make it enough, justify it to like not land there, but like up at the top, there's, there's no penguins. So we get everything ashore. The waiter team is still in the water and the Zodiac backs out. And then a bunch of penguins like come up right next to where we broke this trail like a dozen penguins come on shore. And we were like, um, so now what? So we, you know, start setting up the snowshoes and breaking things open and getting geared up. And like another dozen penguins comes on shore. Now we're starting to be like, are they? No, like once the guests are on shore, they're not gonna stay here, right? Like we're okay. We can, we can like be here, right? So I go with the team, they start flagging. I'm just like packing down the trail more for people. And we're like a third of the way up and I turn around and there's like a hundred penguins at the landing site. I'm like, what is happening down there? And then I get halfway up and there's like 300 penguins at the landing site. I'm like, what is going on? And Zodiacs are coming with guests. Like there's 300 penguins now at the landing site. And like the Zodiacs are on their way from the ship. So like, what are we going to do? So we just like bring the guests on shore because like if the, we'll maintain five meters distance and like, if the penguins don't like all these people, then we'll just figure it out. And there's like, you can see these rafts of hundreds of penguins swimming around just offshore. So some of the Zodiacs like end up having to wait because these rafts of like a hundred penguins at a time start approaching the, the site that we've cut open. And like, they can't get the Zodiac in there because all the penguins are going ashore. So by the time all the guests are on shore, there's like over a thousand penguins on the landing site. 
And like some of the guests come up to me and like put on snowshoes and like start hiking to the top and the penguins start hiking to the top to their normal <laughs> landing sites, um, to their normal nesting areas, which just like Cooverville, there's too much snow. There's no, there's no, um, exposed rocks yet, but there is like some pink patches on the snow. Like they've been up there to kind of like see it and then like went back out. But since we were there at high tide, like they all arrived in mass and like most of the guests just stayed down by the landing site. Cause it was like watching salmon jump up a waterfall. Like there was just dozens of penguins jumping out of the water at a time, like jumping up this snowbank coming ashore. And some guests just stayed in the Zodiac and like watched it from the Zodiac. Um, and the team and the waiters is just like penguins are like swimming between their legs and like Weddell seals are swimming around. It was like the craziest day. It was like, what is happening right now? Like by the end of the landing, I'm not kidding. There was probably 5,000 penguins on shore and they just started marching uphill. Like I'm just standing there, like thousands of penguins are walking by me while I'm helping people with their snowshoes. Um, I also happened to wear my penguin onesie on shore that day for fun because I knew it was going to be a long day and I needed like some entertainment and comedic relief for myself and for the team. And then I was like, did I, did I summon all these penguins because I was wearing my penguin costume on shore? Um, I don't think so. I don't have that kind of power, but it was, it was wild to watch them arrive. Um, and I guess uh, one of the researchers from, I think he's at Oxford with Penguin Watch, um, Dr. Tom Hart, he said he has camera traps all over Antarctica to like monitor penguin colonies remotely. And he said they do that. They like arrive in mass and then go back out and then arrive in mass again and then go back out. They do that a couple times. Um, and we just, just happened to catch it at high tide that day. And it was, it was really cool. It was, it was definitely a sight to see. So the weather started to get really, really crummy at the end of the landing. Like we were supposed to host a polar plunge and all this stuff. And like, by the end of the landing, it was like, absolutely not pack this stuff up, get out of here. And it was the wettest Zodiac ride back to the ship. Like we were soaked by the time we got back. So then we weren't done, right? We we're doing a triple header day. So then we backtracked again and went down to Nico Harbor. Um, and we did another we were aiming for another mainland landing there. Nico Harbor is also connected to the peninsula. Um, when we got there, it was blowing like 40 knots. Um, and we were kind of like, nah, are we going to do this? And we waited a little while. And the expedition leader said, let's drop the boats with the gear and go over there and check the shoreline conditions that we can even get to shore with all the ice and let's kind of wait for 15, 20 minutes and see if this weather calms down. And I was kind of like, okay, like I'm, I'm trusting you here, you know, in my mind. Um, and I was one of the people scheduled to drive. And as I got dropped in the, from the crane to the water, um, and I went to unclip my boat, the wind was blowing so hard, the ship swung and like a 40 knot gust came down and I like, I couldn't unclip the boat. There was so much tension, tension on the line. The boat was banging into the side of the ship. Like I couldn't even unclip. Um, 
like I unclipped the main crane hook and I looked at them like, don't let me go. And then the painter line in the front was still clipped to the ship. And I'm just like, slam, 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 slam. Like I couldn't even pull any tension for myself to unclip. Um, and after the gust passed, I finally unclipped and then got thrown down, like got blown down past the stern really quickly. And just, I had my engine on and I just hid behind the ship while the wind passed. Um, and then sure enough, 15, 20 minutes later, the wind just stopped and it was big, heavy, wet snowflakes all day. So we were going to initially do like a, a cruise, like a landing and then Zodiac cruise and like look for wildlife. Um, but the snow was so heavy that like they Zodiac cruised for like 10 minutes. Um, but the thing is at Nico Harbor, um, there's quite a big glacial tsunami risk. So like if the glacier drops a bunch of ice or calves, um, it throws a really big wave down the beach. So you can't leave the Zodiacs on shore. So I was sitting in the snow in the Zodiac waiting for people, <laughs> but it was fine. I definitely had like a nice thick layer of snow on the outside, but it was still warm on the inside. So I picked the right gear for the day, which was good. And then um, getting towards the end of our Antarctica trip before we had to head home, the next day we did Zodiac cruising in Sierra Va Cove. Um, initially was really cool. Lots of Gen 2 penguins coming ashore there as well. So lots of big groups swimming around. We finally found some seals on ice. And then just as we were like, this is the perfect time to head back to the ship, the ship was like, uh, there's too much ice. You can't come back to us. We need to move. 45 minutes later, with many, many cold guests, because the wind also picked up, uh, we finally got everybody back towards the ship and started offloading. Um, so that was a little rough, but it was a cool cruise until the end. <laughs> Um, like it was so windy. I was like, just idle forward and then throttling up occasionally just to hold my position in the wind, not actually making any forward progress. And I was getting waves across the bow, soaking the whole front of the Zodiac. It was so windy trying to offload everybody. Um, but I will say like, I gave everyone in my boat a pep talk before they got out. Like, this is going to be really tough. The gangway is going to be moving a lot. You need to be like totally ready before you stand up and step. And like I coached everybody before they got out and they did beautifully and they got out quickly. Um, and then I was stuck waiting to be lifted for quite a while, just hovering by the ship. But there was another guide who was clipped to the painter line waiting for the crane operator for like way too long, unfortunately. And she like ice kept coming down the side of the, ship and she kept having to turn her engine off and trim it up and then like getting beat up by the ship even more and then like trim her engine back down it was oh I felt so bad for her so yeah so that was a little bit tough and then in the afternoon we went to Mickelson Harbor and it was like sustained 40 knots wind um a scouting team went to go check the landing site to see if there was any shelter back there and we ultimately decided not to land um and then for the last day, we made our way back to the South Shetland Islands and we landed at Half Moon Island in the morning and Half Moon Island covered in snow with chinstrap penguins and Weddell seals was so pleasant and it was so beautiful. Um, there was multiple mom and pup 
pairs of Weddell seals as well. And so that was really nice. Lots of chinstrap penguins. Well, lot is relative. Um, less than there normally is, but still quite a few. And then in the afternoon, we went to Yankee Harbor. And on our approach, we finally, finally saw two humpback whales. So that was our first like documentable whales of the trip. Um, and we did get two fluke IDs, which was really nice. And then at Yankee Harbor, um, we had a nice landing. There's a big Gen 2 penguin colony there. Um, there was a very pregnant Weddell seal on shore. Like you could see the pup moving around in her belly, which was really cool. Um, there was an Adeli penguin running around on shore so people could get their Adeli penguin fix. Um, and it was a nice landing to be kind of our final send off um, where we did polar plunge. It was very windy and splashy in the Zodiacs, but, you know, it was our last day. Um, and then we had two days to sail home in the Drake. So overall, um, a challenging but rewarding trip. And as we kept working our way down South Georgia, and then the whole time we were in Antarctica, more and more and more sites in South Georgia closed. It was like the door was slamming behind us on our way out. And... For me, I had another South Georgia trip like immediately afterwards. And I was like, uh, what are we going to do? Um, but I will save that for another episode, I think, because um, this one is plenty long enough. I'll try and insert maps and photos and things where I can um, for the YouTube video. So if you're having a hard time following like everything I'm saying on the audio version, if you have the time and you'd rather watch it on YouTube, I'll try and put some helpful things in there. But um, yeah, amazing introduction to the kingdom of penguins. But we saw Gentoo penguins, Chinstrap penguins, Adelie penguins, Macaroni penguins, King penguins. Um, and the trip was 20 days long. We operated at nine locations in South Georgia. Seven of them were landings on shore, two Zodiac cruises, nine locations in Antarctica, eight of them were landings. One of them was a Zodiac cruise, and we traveled almost 3,000 miles in those 20 days. So pretty darn incredible. So that's it, I think, for this one. I'll try and get another couple ones recorded to, like, catch up to where I am in the season because I'm on a break. I actually have two more trips um, before I'm all the way done. So hopefully I'll cover um, more of how things have progressed with the season, um, how the season changes throughout um, the summer here, and uh, yeah, share some photos and, and more stories. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sticking with us, even with it being a slow past 12 months creatively for the podcast and supporting us in every way, shape, and form that you do. And we'll see you on the next one. Bye.